we are going to be in Luke 10 this morning, and we're going to close out this year-long dive into what it means to be an authentic community. We're in Luke 10, starting at verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you that you're here with us this morning. I thank you, God, that you are moving towards us. Even right now, as we're in your presence, you are actively moving towards us. Lord, I know that many of us have come into the room today, and we're in a season where we're struggling, and we're dealing with loss, and we're dealing with all of the things of the holidays and all of the things that are stressful and hard, and Lord Jesus, I thank you that that doesn't make you run away from us. It doesn't make you pull back, but instead you press into relationship with us. You pursue us and you come after us. And Lord, we just want to experience your closeness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I took my family to see the new Mr. Rogers movie yesterday. I know, a lot of you are really excited about that. Um, it was a fantastic movie. My 10-year-old said it was good, so that, that's a winner. Um, my five-year-old leaned over to my husband every time a new character walked onto the scene and said, is that Mr. Rogers? Is that Mr. Rogers? We're like, oh. So, um, good family movie. Um, so this movie has been out for about a week now, super popular. Um, if you're like me and you didn't grow up in America, you may not know who Fred Rogers was. He is kind of this iconic television personality who is most famous for hosting a children's show during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he was also an ordained minister. Uh, this new movie star stars Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers, and Time Magazine says that it's one of those movies you didn't know that you needed. Going on to say that it's both entertainment and spiritual toolkit closing by saying that it stirs hope in us. But why? Why is this movie getting rave reviews? Why are children and adults alike drawn to it? 
Well, a central theme in the movie is the idea of neighbor, and it also happens to be the central theme of this text that we just read today. So let's unpack that and see what God has for us this morning. So this scene opens and there's this lawyer that comes to Jesus and they're discussing how they can inherit eternal life. And they mutually agree that that is attained by loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so then the lawyer goes on to ask a further question and he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, this may seem harmless, it may seem benign, even understandable, because if you're discussing, like, how do I get to heaven, you want to be clear. You want to know, like, am I checking all the boxes? Who is my neighbor? The problem, though, if we dig into the context of this text, it is actually more about defining boundaries. Like, you are my neighbor, you are not my neighbor. It's about drawing lines in the sand. It's about categories. It's about saying, for whom am I responsible for? Who am I supposed to help? And who does it, like, not really matter? For this Jewish man, he might have categorized this based on religion, ethnicity, geographical location. Like, there would have been reasons he was asking this question. And so Jesus responds by telling this famous story. And if you grew up in the church, you probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan a thousand times. And this morning, what I want to ask you to do is set aside that Sunday school kind of kind, gentle image of maybe a man with a little bandage on his head and a little cut on his arm on the side of the road. And I want us to actually ask ourselves, what is this image that Jesus is conveying with the story? Because this is a violent image. This is bloody. This is a naked man stripped of his clothing, desperate and half dead. This is a traumatizing, barbaric and cruel story. This fear and terror and desperation. This is not cute sheeps or coins like Jesus tells in some of his other stories. This is not lighthearted. It's the stuff of real life, raw pain and suffering. This man has been left for dead and he has nobody. He's dying by himself on the side of the road, tossed aside, no dignity, no care, almost like he's a piece of trash. And then two men approach this man, a priest and a Levite, and both of them religious, and both of them saw him. I mean, let's be clear, it wasn't like they were walking past and they were like, oh, I, I didn't even see him, they weren't aware. They saw him, and then they had the exact same response. They passed by on the other side. They positioned themselves in such a way, they removed themselves, even though this man was desperate and alone and suffering and in pain, they moved away from him. They positioned themselves at a distance. They pulled back, separated, disconnected, and disengaged. Somehow, these two men had created categories in their head of who gets their compassion and help and who does not. And for some reason, this man did not. We've been hearing a lot in our nation recently about dehumanizing language. Even Eugene Cho, who was here last week, he talked about it a couple of different times. Brene Brown describes this, she gives us a definition. She says, the psychological process of demonizing the enemy, making them seem less than human, and hence not worthy of humane treatment. Is this not what the priest and the Levite were doing? 
You are not worthy of humane treatment. You are a man, you are human, dying on the side of the road, and I won't even tend to you. I won't even care for you. Well, you might say, Ruthie, I agree. This behavior was disgusting. In fact, it's disgusting in our nation right now. Some of the things that we're hearing people say about certain groups of people, and I'm outraged, and if I was on that, on that road, I would have stopped for that man. But I want us to ask a question this morning. What is the genesis of dehumanizing and demonizing behavior? What does it look like in its infancy before it's full-grown and explicit. See, I'd like to propose that these men move to the other side, passed by on the other side in their hearts, long before they did it on that road. Somehow they had cultivated a heart of neglect and indifference and complete disregard for human life They'd cultivated it in day-to-day moments so that when they were faced with this extreme scenario, they just passed by on the other side. If you look up the word dehumanizing or demonizing, you'll find other words linked to it, things like demeaning or belittling, cutting down to size, bad-mouthing, disparaging, and undervaluing. You see, now it sort of gets real. Before we declare ourselves more righteous than the priest and the Levite, we have to ask ourselves what's going on in our own hearts. If if these are the relatives of dehumanizing and demonizing behavior, is it possible that the seeds of that, the infancy of that, lies in all of our hearts? The very things that we rage about on social media and we say, that's disgusting, perhaps live in the crevices of our own hearts. I mean, how many times have we rolled our eyes at the barista because they got our coffee wrong? We flipped off the person that drove past us too fast and cut us off. Or we belittled our partner because we wanted to feel better and defend ourselves. Or we patronized and we condescended and we put somebody else down. See, these are the seeds that are left unchecked in our heart grow into something much more significant and serious. Because ultimately, at the heart of this extreme behavior that we see from the priest and the Levite is a cultivated heart of disconnection, disengagement, a life marked by asking the question, well, who is my neighbor? Can I put that person in that category and they be my non-neighbor and therefore I'm not responsible for them and it doesn't matter how I treat them even in the tiniest, smallest ways. You see, we all practice a variety of micro-movements of disconnection. Micro-movements of disconnection where we pull back and we disengage. Maybe you experienced that this morning. You came in here, you're chatting to someone. They share something about their life that felt heavy or it felt like, man, if I just kind of go, in, go into that, that's going to go down into like a long conversation and it sounds painful and we just kind of bring the conversation to an end and we kind of move away and we deflect and we disengage. It's like, I just, I'm not ready to go there with you. We pick up our phone, we distract ourselves, we tell family, I'm too busy to call, like micro-movements that cultivate a certain kind of heart. And though we might judge the priest and the Levite, 
It's easy to judge in these extreme scenarios, but we have to ask what's going on in our own hearts. I think this is probably why the Mr. Roger movies is, is just like, everyone's like, yes. It's like a breath of fresh air, because we're like, we're tired of living this way, and we're tired of being on the other end of it, of being treated that way. And perhaps it's gonna take a Mr. Rogers movie to convince all of us that this whole 11 months talking about authentic community is actually right. Maybe we actually hardwired for connection. Maybe we're actually called to move towards people, to be in their lives and have them in our lives. See, I think this text is not so much focused on asking who is my neighbor, but rather Jesus asking us, who are you? The end of the scripture, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. There's a subtle difference here because when we say who is our neighbor, then we can end up going down a path where we decide, well, these people aren't my neighbors. But when we ask ourselves, what kind of person is God calling me to be, no matter my circumstances, no matter what comes my way, well, now it's a question of discipleship. And if you read the book of Luke, this theme of discipleship is heavy throughout all of it. What's going on in our hearts? What kind of people do we want to be? So how do we do that? Well, this morning I want to talk about three different ways that we can practice being a good neighbor to one another. Number one, movement versus paralysis. It says, but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him and he went to him. We're part of a big community here. We probably have what, maybe two to 3,000 people that kind of rotate through over the year, sitting in services like this. And every single one of us has immense amount of need in our life. And when we go to CGs or we hang out with friends, sometimes, I mean, real talk, sometimes it feels like everyone we talk to, there's just so much need, so much brokenness, so, much th so many things that people are holding and carrying. And then we live in San Francisco, and we walk around, and there's so much injustice and so much need all around us, and it's easy to get desensitized. It's easy to feel torn between compassion and anger. I experience this. I don't actually live very far from here. And most mornings I wake up and there's a homeless community that is literally right outside my home. And I've spent the last 20 years of my life working with the poor and the marginalized. And to some de degree, I understand the complexity of homelessness and I have a deep compassion for those who experience it. And yet when I find needles, in my planters where my children dig in the soil, then I feel angry. And there's a tension there, isn't there? And so many of us experience that tension. Where on one hand, we're like, I want to move in compassion, but I have all this kind of anger and frustration, and I feel overwhelmed because I walk out the door or I ride Muni, and I'm just like, oh, it's like on every side. And sometimes the way that we deal with that feeling of being overwhelmed is we kind of push down the tension because living in tension is exhausting, and it's incredibly hard. And when we push it down, we become indifferent. We become disheartened and discouraged and we're unmoved by the person that comes to CG and asks for prayer because all week we've been practicing just pushing down the tension. And we kind of don't feel much when we drive out of Safeway and we see the person with the sign. 
because it's hard to engage and ask questions and think, should I stop, should I not, what should I do? That's a hard tension to live in, so we just push it down. And we're unaffected when the church says, hey, partner with local ministry organizations. We're like, oh, the need's so big, and I'm so overwhelmed, and so the indifference moves to paralysis, and we don't do anything. We're not sure what to do. And if it's not like this perfect strategy, 10-year thing, we're like, I don't know what I should do, so we don't do anything. See, cultivating a mindset of compassion is incredibly risky because we're choosing to be emotionally affected. We're choosing to live in tension. It will cost us something. It might mean we have to change our plans. It can be frustrating and it can be painful. And part of the problem, I think, is we don't know how to steward our hearts well. I was chatting with Pastor Eugene Cho last week and I was talking to him about something similar to this and he said this and it's gold because everything he says is gold. But he's like, Ruthie, there's a difference between proactive retreat and reactive retreat. And he says, you know, most of us live reactive retreating. We're like overwhelmed by the city. We're overwhelmed by our community. So many hard conversations, all the stuff. And so we just hit a point and we go, going to Tahoe, right? Going to Napa. <laughs> Anybody want to go wine tasting? Anybody? We're just, <laughs> we kind of hit that point, don't we? And I've hit that point before where I literally, I'll be driving down the street and I feel like the walls are closing in. You know, it's just like, oh my gosh, the needs are everywhere. And I'm so overwhelmed. And so we go on our trips and while we're there, we feel resentful that we had to spend money to get out of the city to feel better. And then we kind of, you know, get a little fill. We come back and we just repeat it like three months later. You see, so many of us live reactive to suffering and pain, and we don't know how to steward our hearts. And I want to suggest this morning, like Pastor Eugene said, that we can retreat proactively, that we can nurture and cultivate a life that enables us to steward our hearts and care for them whilst living in the midst of suffering and pain. How do we proactively retreat? How do we make space and time? How do we go after the heart of Jesus regularly, seeking refreshment, nurturing our soul so we don't have to flee, but that we can remain? See, I believe that Jesus is calling us to be like the Good Samaritan, to move towards people in need, to show compassion, Maybe it looks like a simple smile. You pass someone on the street. Maybe it's a text to that person in your CG that's been coming every month with the same thing. And you're like, no, I'm gonna keep pressing in and loving you. What does it look like to give someone a financial gift? Or to sit down and say, I wanna hear your story. Tell me about your life. One of the things I loved about the Mr. Rogers movie, so there's a small clip where they talked about how he cultivated this behind the scenes, behind the camera life. And he was consistent, had integrity, but little things like how he loved his wife and spent time with her, how he hand wrote letters to people, how he prayed for people by name every night. You see, it's the small steps, it's the small movements, if the, if the micro-movements away from people 
can lead to something so destructive as dehumanizing behavior and language. Imagine the power of micro-movements towards someone. The small daily steps, the little things that we do that we think carry very little value. But I think in the kingdom of God, the little things are the big things. Because we all want a big thing. We all want a big moment where we get into, into someone's life and we help transform it and we've got a testimony and we've got a thing. But I actually think the kingdom of God is built on faithfulness. It's built on the small things because Jesus sees every person you smile at and every person you text. And you might not get an award and nobody might know about it, but he knows and this is how he builds his kingdom on the little everyday moments that have this lasting impact. You see, as we close out this year of authentic community, it's easy to slip into, well, I want a big thing. I want a big moment. But how about we be people of small things and small moments? So today we are, are, we're actually doing something that I'm really super excited about giving us the opportunity to partner with small moments. Today, Reality San Francisco is partnering with the nonprofit that I lead, Because Justice Matters. You might have seen us out in the lobby. Uh, if you're not familiar with who we are, we've been around for 11 years in the Tenderloin, building pathways to brighter futures for women and girls in urban communities. One of the things that we do is support women who are marginalized, homeless, in need, dealing with addiction. And there's one really tangible way that we do that and that you can do that with us. You know, as we head into the winter and the rain starts to come, for most of us, it's like, well, no big deal. Like, you know, it's annoying, it's frustrating, but we can go home and change. But if you're a homeless woman on the street and there's nowhere to go change, it can be a really vulnerable situation to get wet. In fact, it can be life-threatening. So one of the things that we started to do was to hand out these little rain ponchos. And inside, there's a little resource card. And it might seem really small, but I want to tell you why it's so powerful, and I want to invite you to partner with us around this. Number one, when you stop for a person, a lady, and you hand her a rain poncho, what you're doing is you say, I see you. I see you. It's offering dignity. It's saying you matter. Because so many of those in our homeless community just passed by every day and no one stops. And often what happens is the paralysis kicks in and we think, well, if I can't get you off the street and get you into rehab and provide you housing and do that holistic thing, but I just don't know what to do. But I think we're always called to do the one small thing, to offer dignity to someone and say, I see you. That was the beauty of Mr. Rogers. Man, when he'd look into that camera, I mean, I know people who are like my age now, that are like, Mr. Rogers saved my childhood. I mean, literally saved my childhood because of abuse, because of pain. I felt that nobody saw me, but when I looked in that screen, Mr. Rogers saw me. That's the power that every single one of us carries to look at someone and say, I see you and you have value. I'm on my way to work, I'm dressed in my suit, I'm doing my thing, but I stopped and I took the time because you matter and you have value. And that's what happens when you give a rain poncho to a woman. Second thing is you give her resources. Every single one of our little ponchos has a resource card inside. These are our ponchos, by the way. Um, has a resource card inside, and it connects them to Because Justice Matters and the ongoing services we provide. You know, it's not always about start, like reinventing the wheel and starting something new. Sometimes it's beautiful to just partner 
with someone that's doing something and that's what you'll be doing. And then the third thing, and I don't want us to underestimate this, is it moves our own hearts. You see, when we stop for someone that can give us nothing in return, we're not networking, we're not getting something from it, then it moves our hearts to love beyond ourselves and say, you know what, I want to move towards people. I don't want to be paralyzed. I want to respond. I want to show, show you the love of Jesus. It's a prophetic act. You see, this is the joy of what Mr. Rogers did as he's praying and he's writing letters. It's constantly these small things that keep our hearts cultivated so that when we find ourselves on that road, we don't pass by on the other side. So that's going to be available. They'll be in the lobby right afterwards. You can buy a pack of 10 for $20. We have a thousand ponchos. It would be amazing to walk out there at the end of this morning and Reality San Francisco just bought them all. So let's do that. Okay. All right, number two. So we had movement versus paralysis. Number two, generosity versus scarcity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Listen, this city runs on a currency of scarcity. Like, there's never enough, there's never enough jobs, there's never enough cute Christian guys or cute Christian girls, there's never enough opportunities, we're never making enough money, like, it's scarcity, right? And the reality is that probably most of us in this room moved here to get something. Like, we wanted our startup funded, or we wanted to find a relationship we couldn't find in our hotel, or we wanted a job opportunity, so we kind of came with this posture of needing something. The problem is that although for some of us, some of those needs are very legitimate, regardless of whether those needs are met, we always think we don't have enough. Have you ever noticed when you get one job and you think, if I could just get a promotion, and you get it, and it's like, well, if I could just get another promotion, it's like there's never quite enough. We never quite have enough money to feel secure. We never quite have enough opportunities to feel like we're a success and we're making it. And it's the spirit of the city. And we have to resist the temptation to buy into it because scarcity can breed hoarding and greed. And we get angst around our resources and our time and our energy. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what you do, you will always feel it in this city. And we need to be aware of that. But you see, look at this guy. He stops for the man. He takes the time. He bandages him. That means he has to touch him. Friends, I know that some of us are germaphobes. But like the reality is, he touched this man who was half dead and broken on the street. How does that challenge what we're willing to do? And he pours oil and wine, such extravagant. He didn't dab it. He didn't like spot it. He poured it onto this man. And then he used his own donkey for him to ride on so that he had the discomfort of having to walk a distance. And then he paid his expenses so he felt it in his bank account. And then he returned to offer more. He didn't consider it a one-time good deed but he actually took on a long-term investment. 
The challenge to us is, are we living lives that are extravagantly generous? Despite the fact that we feel like our rent is way too expensive, and despite the fact that we don't get to do all the fun things that we want to do, and despite the fact that we're checking our bank account month to month, are we being extravagantly, extra extravagantly generous with our finances? Are we extravagantly generous with our time? Do we ever audit our nights of the week and our weekend and say, man, how am I spending my time? My time. Are we extravagantly generous with our energy? Or is 80% of our energy on our life and our business or our nonprofit or our things we're passionate about, our hobbies? Or are we sharing that energy and investing into the community? I believe that we're called to be extravagantly generous and proactively generous. Just this week, somebody Venmoed me money out of nowhere and said, you and Brian are in ministry and we just wanted to bless you with a night out. So here's some money and go buy dinner. And then he said, my wife and I keep a special fund to bless people with dinner. And I just, I, I cried because, you know, but then I looked at my husband, and I was like, babe, I want to do that. Like, that's like so proactively generous that we wouldn't just react to, oh, there's a need, I guess I'll do something, but that we would be scanning our community and scanning our city and saying, I've got something set aside, whether it's finances, whether it's margin in my schedule, whatever it is, I've got something set aside because I want to be so generous. What does it look like to be 20 percent more generous than we are right now. Time, energy, resources, lending your experience to someone that can give nothing in return. We had a story that happened at Because Justice Matters just a few weeks ago that I want to share. One of the ministries that we do is we, do, we paint nails for women in the Tenderloin and two of our staff were out walking the streets and they came across one of our women and uh, she was filthy, just filthy. Not just like a little dirty, like just, you know, filthy all over. And they said, you know, we'd love to see you at nail day. And she said, oh, I can't come looking like this. I just, I can't. And they said, no, no, we have a shower. Like, we'd love to have you. You're so welcome. She said, I cannot come looking like this. And she reached in her back pocket and she pulled out a Safeway gift card that somebody had given her she handed it to our staff and she said, but please use this for the women. Don't tell them it's from me, just use it. And they said, no, no, we want you to come, we want to bless you. She said, no, I want to bless those women. And I heard that story about a woman on the street with nothing, like literally nothing but a Safeway gift card that someone had given her that she had stuffed in her back pocket. And she gave it and it moved me because I thought, man, how often do I say I've got nothing to give? I can't respond, and yet here we have this beautiful woman giving everything that she had. What does it look like for us to be extravagantly generous? And then number three, wisdom versus judgment. What's interesting about this story is that Jesus says that they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road was renowned for being dangerous. I mean, it was, just, it was known. So the men that he was talking to, they would have known. And they probably would have thought things like, well, I wouldn't have traveled that road. Well, I wouldn't have gone by myself. 
Well, I would have at least taken some kind of sword, something to defend myself with. Because it's so easy to move to judgment. When we see need, when we see something, we often respond with, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Seems like you could have made some better choices. Isn't this the third time you've had the same need? Well, you probably shouldn't have rented a place that was so expensive if you didn't have the budget for it. Well, maybe you shouldn't have dated that guy if you knew it didn't work out the last time. Maybe you shouldn't have agreed to a job with such a long commute and now you're coming tired to CG every week. I wouldn't have done that. See, it's so easy to move into judgment. And we begin to ask the question, do you deserve my help? Do your mistakes disqualify you from being my responsibility? It would have been easy for them to have heard the story and thought, well, he should not have been traveling on that road, so you get what you get. How often do we shift into judgment as we see a need and we see suffering, and the first thing we do is we judge it because it's easy and it's quick to judge. And I think some of the reason we do that is because the tension is so hard. We can bypass tension if we can judge it and say it's not worthy of our time. That person's not our neighbor. That's an easy, quick fix. If we drive out of Safeway and we see the person, the sign, and we think, well, there are these services, these things you could have done different, we can just shove down the tension and we can say, you're not my neighbor. It's quick and easy to judge. But I believe that God is calling us into a place of wisdom instead of judgment. Man, I'm so glad that when I approach God, there's so much grace. That when I come with the thing that I've done wrong, the same thing again and again, that he doesn't respond with, well, we've talked about this before and I told you not to do it that way. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I noticed this with, um, with my children a few years back. I remember one time my child fell off his bike and the first thing that came out of my mouth was, I told you to go slower. I mean, we all do that as parents. Like, it's kind of like, I told you. I judged the moment. And the Holy Spirit was like, Ruthie, that's not how I treat you. When you come to me and you're broken and you're hurting, I don't tell you up front what you should have done better. I love you in that moment. And that's the kind of people that I feel like God's calling us to be radical grace. Because we have experienced extravagant grace but how do we balance that, right? How do we balance extravagant generosity and good stewardship? I mean, how do we stop for people and me in need and yet not lose our job that provides for our family? How do we carry one another's burdens without maxing out our emotional capacity? These are all great questions. And I don't think that wisdom ignores these questions. It simply reframes them through a lens of sacrificial love. It leads with love instead of judgment. It asks the same questions, but it leads, it shows up right at the front with love and grace. It doesn't lead with judgment and all the reasons why not. 
So inevitably, in this room, there's a thousand questions running through our head. Well, when do I stop for someone? And how do I respond to that person in my community? And you know, when do I challenge? And when do I show restraint? And there's like all these scenarios. And in the two and a half minutes that I have left, that obviously I'm not going to keep, um, it's hard for me to answer all of those questions. So I'm just going to give us a few principles. Number one, this is why we need community. We need people to help us discern what to do in our lives. I mean, literally, to have the conversation like, there's this person I pass when I get off the bar, and I've been wanting to do something, but I don't know what, and can you help me, and give me some input, and how should I respond, and what should I do? This is why we need one another. We need to glean the wisdom from one another. Number two, we need the Holy Spirit. We need him big time. We can't do this good Samaritan thing without the Holy Spirit. There are so many times when I'm walking down the street, when I'm in community having conversation, when a need comes to my door, when I'm thinking about what's going on, on the ha- outside my house, that I'm just like, Holy Spirit, what do I do in this situation? We need to start asking the Holy Spirit. You see, we're so cerebral. We're so smart in this room, San Francisco. But I tell you what, sometimes it doesn't look logical. And sometimes it's not what we did last time. We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Number three, let's just talk about boundaries. I have this conversation with a lot of you about boundaries and what are good boundaries. Many of us in this room fall into two categories. Number one, we have zero boundaries. (laughs) We say yes to everything and everyone. We find ourselves in situations we don't want to be in. We feel taken advantage of, we're anxious, we're overwhelmed. We don't know where we end and somebody else starts. We kind of say yes all the time, no boundaries. And then there are those of us in the room that would probably admit admit that we're overly structured with our boundaries. We lean towards control, we protect our time and resources and energy like a hawk. We don't like to have our schedule thrown off, we don't want to be interrupted, you like things just so, your home is a certain way, you have a very clear set of guidelines. When you hear things like, people find themselves in situations they don't want to be in, that never happens to me. Because I've got my boundaries, (laughs) lines that you don't cross. Nobody calls me late at night because I told them a long time ago I'll never pick up. Nobody interrupts my schedule because I've made it very clear that this is how I live my life. So if you find yourself in group number one, you probably need to lean into your boundaries. You need to start saying no. You actually need to set limits to identify and fully enter into the person that God has called you to be. I really believe that boundaries are holy work. Part of being in community is figuring out who we are and what is God calling us to. Sometimes boundaries are what we need to bring clarity to that. Includes things like honoring our body and physical limitations, being able to understand and identify what hurts you and what's harmful. So if you're that kind of person that says yes to everything, then your job after this sermon might be to evaluate and talk to your community and say, What do healthy boundaries look like for me? What do healthy boundaries look like for me this Thanksgiving as I go home and I spend time with my family? 
I'm always the one that does this, and I always resent it, and I feel anxious, and I feel painful, and I don't know how to respond to that person. This week is a great time to talk to your community about how do I set healthy boundaries that honor who God has created me to be so I can be fully that person. And number two, if you're leaning into uh, the fact that you've got more boundaries, then I would say there's probably an invitation to be more flexible to recognize that the Holy Spirit often likes to interrupt our schedule to actually find out who's running the show. To challenge us out of our box, to think less about our own comfort, and instead embrace service and love. You see, we need to know the difference between a healthy boundary and a comfort zone. Because a lot of us have comfort zones, like I'm really comfortable with my life this way. Jesus invites us into discomfort. And this is more of an art than a science. There's no clear way forward. We need community to help us navigate and love one another well. See, I think the story of the Good Samaritan is less about this is what you do when you discover this poor, broken person on the road. And it's more about asking ourselves, what kind of heart are we cultivating? What kind of person do we want to be every single day of our lives? no matter who comes into our world? And are we living into the opportunities to cultivate being that person every single day? Let's be people that move towards one another, not just in the year of authentic community, but always. Let's be people that lean and move into one another and into our city. Because we have a God that moved towards us. You know, next year we move into, sorry, next week we move into Advent. And, you know, Advent, the waiting and the acknowledging that we have Messiah God with us, that literally Jesus embodied. The irony of the story is that Jesus is talking about a man that came and extravagantly lost, uh, loved a broken man on the side of the street that was half dead, and yet that is what he was doing. That is what he came to the earth to do. He's telling the story about a good Samaritan, but I think it's declaring something about him, that he didn't keep at a distance, and he wasn't the person that passed by on the other side. He said, I see you, and I'm coming to you. That's the extravagance of God. He isn't the other side kind of God. He's the I see you, and I'm coming to you kind of God. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.